We start with the crisis in healthcare in British Columbia and across Canada, the doctor shortage, the lengthening wait lists, the emergency rooms shutting down in towns all across BC. Canada's premiers are now asking the feds for more money for health care. It is not going well. The federal government says the premiers are using fake numbers as they demand billions more in federal cash. Got Camille Curry standing by on this. She is with BC Healthcare Matters. First, have a listen to this here. Here's Premier John Horgan. All the premiers in Canada have met for the past two days in Victoria on this issue. Horgan was the chair of that meeting. He is not happy. Here's what he had to say yesterday. It's past time for the federal government to stop quibbling, to stop saying that we don't have a problem with our publicly funded national health care system and sit down at a table with the 13 premiers from provinces and territories and do what Canadians want us to do and get ourselves back on track to have an envious world-class health care system, not one that is crumbling under our feet. Uh, Premier John Horgan speaking yesterday at the Premier's Conference in Victoria. Let's discuss now with my guest, Camille Curry. Camille is the founder of BC Healthcare Matters. It's the campaign for family doctors in BC. And I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Hi, Camille. Thanks for coming on today. Hi, how are you this morning? I'm, I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for doing this. So as you listen to the premiers here get upset and angry at the feds here over health care dollars, mm-hmm. we got the finger pointing going on <laughs> back and forth here now. Meanwhile, you know, we've got what what is it nearly a million people in B.C. without a family doctor right now? Yeah, exactly. That equates to one out of five in British Columbia. That's staggering. Yeah. What do you think when you hear these politicians now playing this blame game while this is going on? What's going what was going through your mind yesterday as you listen to this? Um, well, it's discouraging for sure, because we'd like to see some advancement on that front. Um, you know, there probably are issues within how this is playing out in the federal stream. But I mean, within B.C., and I can't speak to other provinces, but we know there is for sure issues here within the province and how um, funding is being used and how it's being um, within which area. Like, is it being used for primary care? Are you really addressing the crisis that we're looking for help in? Um, so, yeah, listening to that, it's a little discouraging for sure, but it doesn't affect our efforts, that's for sure, because we're going to keep pressing forward and we're going to keep making our message very clear until, you know, we do see that every resident of BC has access to timely care with a family physician. Yeah, and your campaign is doing a great job, I would say, in putting this issue forward. You've got your lawn sign campaign going. I saw that you had a rally outside of the Premier's meeting this week. Which, which I think was great. What is the, what's the main message that you have for, for the politicians here in both levels of government? So um, I guess our main message is, like I said, that our group and what we have heard from all the residents of British Columbia is that we will continue pressing this issue forward until we see every resident of BC getting that timely access to a family doctor. And myself and my group are not fully convinced either that funding is necessarily what's going to be the solution to this problem. Maybe more money will help, and that's great. If that is the solution, then we'll support that. But maybe we also need to, as the federal government has stated to the um, premiers, maybe we need to see more accountability and the politicians making better choices with the money that is already in the system. Can you give me an example of that, of where you think the, the, the current funding could be more effectively spent? 
Yeah, well, I think, you know, if you're uh, reading any of the newspapers this morning, you're probably going to get a highlight of that because we can see that there's um, a new release about the Chilliwack Urgent Primary Care Centre. Um, you know, it was only, what was this, less than two months ago that the uh, health minister himself was present at the Chilliwack Urgent Primary Care Centre, suggesting this is going to be a great solution, in particular for those with complex care needs. And now today there's um, reports in all the papers that within a couple months there'll be no doctors left there to staff it and you know for those that have come forward to talk about it they specifically state in these reports that it's due to mismanagement of healthcare dollars speaking to camille curry the founder of bc healthcare matters can you talk a little bit camille about for people who do not have access to a family doctor in british columbia nearly a million people how does that impact uh levels of service and people who may you know they may miss early detection of complex health problems, right? Absolutely. And, you know, that's, I think, one issue that maybe everybody doesn't have as much of an appreciation for because they just haven't maybe had to face it yet. But having a family physician is absolutely essential to disease prevention. You know, that is how most cancers get caught. Um, and when that when that family physician is not there in your life and playing that role for you, it's often leading to later diagnoses, either more difficult treatments or, unfortunately, even some individuals that aren't eligible for treatments. Um, we also hear about tons of people with uh, cardiac issues, and it's so easy sometimes. You know, they often call things the silent killers when it comes to heart stuff, and there's a reason for that. It's very difficult for an individual to know when they are at risk of something, and that is the important role that a family physician plays is being able to monitor um, your well-being and ensure that you're living the best quality of life and ensuring that they get on something if they see something askew that we may not see as citizens because we are not medically trained professionals. Yeah, last question for you, Camille. Like When you take a look at the situation right now, and we've interviewed family doctors here on the show who have talked about some of the challenges that they face under this fee-for-service system that we have in British Columbia. There's pressure to rotate as many patients through their office as they can to get that fee. They face these large overhead costs to run their effectively a, a small business. The model just doesn't seem to be working. Like, it seems like there's a lot of doctors just don't want to be a family doctor faced with this system. Like, Do you think that, that fee-for-service system is one of the problems here? I'm not convinced by that. Um, I think that there are lots of other provinces that currently do have fee-for-service systems in place, and they are succeeding. They are thriving in the way that they're um, using those systems, but they're different models. And so I think that's really important for us to understand as well, is that the fee-for-service that's being used in British Columbia is not the same fee-for-service that's being used necessarily in all the other provinces. And that could very much explain why um, it's such an issue here. But I also agree that it might be that there's family physicians that want to be on contracts. And so we've always said from the get-go that there should also be more options for the alternative pay models. And right now there are still restrictions on how many can be handed out to physicians. So I hope that all that is addressed because it's essential for every part of that to work properly for all the different kinds of physicians, just as there are different kinds of patients. Um, And until we see that all in place and making everyone happy and all of us being cared for, we're not going to let up. Okay, I know you won't. Camille, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Mike. You have a great day. Let's talk about Vancouver's disturbing surge in violent street crime now, especially the random attacks we see on the streets of the city every single day. Vancouver police reporting an average of four random stranger assaults 
every day in the city, and some of these are absolutely disgusting and disturbing, especially the attack on a young woman that took place on Monday in Kitsilano. This happened near West 10th Avenue and Waterloo Street. This is normally a, a very quiet and peaceful residential neighborhood. Uh, two masked men uh, attacking a young woman trying to steal her phone. Have a listen to this here from, from her mom. This is Morella Gibo. Her daughter is 30 years old, and she said this happened to her daughter. Have a listen to this. She's speaking to Global News. Two guys came up. They had covered their faces with a scarf, so they were masked, and they grabbed her purse. They took her headphones. They wanted her her, her phone, um, and she was rattled, and they elbowed her in the face, and she didn't want to give up her, her phone, so they punched her seven times in the face. You know, and this is a thing that gets me. What kind of person, what kind of man punches a female in the face? All right, let's discuss this now with my guest, Sergeant Steve Addison, spokesperson for the Vancouver Police Department. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Steve, thanks for coming on again today. Hey, no problem, Mike. Okay, every time we have you on, it's just another outrageous attack, it seems. So let's talk about this one here now. I know VPT have, have increased their street patrols here in this area. Can you tell me the status of this investigation and what, what happened to this young woman here? Yeah, a very uh, concerning investigation. A little bit different than than some of the random and unprovoked stranger attacks that we have previously talked about. Because when we normally when we talk about stranger attacks um, or unprovoked attacks, there's no uh, um, rhyme or reason for them. It's just violence for the sake of violence with no other apparent motive. In this case, this looks like a robbery or an a, a, an attempted robbery of a woman who was doing absolutely nothing wrong. Um, She's a, a woman in her 30s, 3.30 in the morning, was out for a walk in her neighborhood, uh, normally a, a, quite a safe neighborhood in the area of 10th and Waterloo out in Kitsilano when, um, as you said, two men um, who had their faces covered uh, approached her, um, physically attacked her, tried to rob her. She did absolutely nothing wrong. In fact, she did everything right. Um, she got to a place of safety. She got herself some medical help, and then she called the police. And by doing those things, uh, she's allowed us to begin an investigation. Um, we're right now um, in the midst of that investigation, trying to identify who these people were. Uh, we've uh, beefed up patrols in the area, um, not just to, uh, not only to have um, uh, more police presence in the area, but to try to gather uh, um, additional evidence that could help us to identify who these people uh, were and uh, to apprehend them. Yeah, this is brutal. Did you say this happened at 3.30 in the morning? Yeah, 3.30 in the morning, quiet neighborhood, um, mostly, usually a, quite a safe neighborhood. Um, uh, woman in her 30s just out for a walk, minding her own business, doing absolutely nothing wrong. Wow, okay. So does that make it tough when, it's, when it happens at that time? I imagine the very few other people on the street, maybe very dark. Um, does that make it tough for collecting evidence? Um. We've had a we've had a significant uh, amount of success in cases like these. Um, although we haven't identified the suspects yet, and we have a limited description to go on, as you can imagine, late at night, um, men with their faces covered who wow. were attacking a woman. Um, we have a limited description to go on right now, but through the course of our investigation. Boots on the ground, out there knocking on doors, talking to people, doing video canvases. We're hopeful that we'll be able to um, find some evidence, 
maybe it's video, maybe it's a picture, maybe it's an eyewitness, maybe it's somebody with dash cam that might give us a break in this case. And um, with a number of these high-profile cases that you and I have talked about over the last number of months, we've had a lot of success in identifying people, arresting them, and getting convictions. It's early in this one, but we're hoping that through the course of the investigation, we'll make some significant progress. Okay, man, that is, I can't think of a, it's hard to think of a more cowardly attack on two men with their their faces masks doing this to to a young woman and i i hope for her full recovery here uh let me ask you steve about another investigation vpd right now a stabbing along a row of tents on east hastings street on the downtown east side a lot of people may have seen this sort of it, it almost looks like a growing tent city on the on the sidewalks here in this neighborhood and there was some violence there was it yesterday yeah, this was yesterday around 2.30. Um, it's been um, well well documented over the last number of uh, days and weeks. There's a growing number of uh, tents that have popped up along um, both sides of East Hastings Street, down around uh, Carroll and Columbia Streets. Yesterday afternoon, uh, there was a, a man in a wheelchair who was had just left his, his home, um, which is on East Hastings Street, um, what we believe uh, is that he was trying to navigate his way through some of the debris and a number of the tents that were blocking the sidewalk. Um, he may have bumped into somebody. Uh, there was some sort of an altercation, and this elderly man was uh, stabbed um, a number of times in the back. Fortunately, um, not life-threatening. Uh, we believe he'll recover, but he did have to go to hospital for treatment, and that's an active investigation uh, that's taking place right now. Yeah, when you've got all those tents and the debris down there, does that make it difficult for police? Um, in terms of this investigation, um, it's hard to say. Um, given the, the number of people who are in that block, uh, we would hope that there will be a number of people who uh, did uh, witness this and people who may be able to come forward uh, to provide some information. However, with all of the debris and all of the tents, it does um, tend to cause additional challenges for us in terms of uh, perhaps uh, obstructing um, uh, cameras that may have otherwise captured part of the incident or all of the incident uh, on camera. So those are challenges that we'll have to work through. Obviously, it's a neighborhood that has a lot of challenges, um, whether they're crime-related or policing challenges or other complex social issues. Um, we'll work through it, as we always do. Speaking of Sergeant Steve Addison from the Vancouver Police Department about some of the crime we're seeing on the streets of the city, especially this week. It has been a busy week for police. Let me ask you about the uh, the eighth homicide of the year in Vancouver taking place in Yale Town. Uh, person stabbed. Mm-hmm. That, was that, that was that on Monday? This was Monday morning at 8.30. Yeah. Uh, rush hour, uh, 8.30 in the morning, busy neighborhood. Uh, right downtown in Yelltown, um, a man um, in his 20s uh, was stabbed and killed. Uh, we've identified a suspect. Um, we're still working to collect evidence, and what we really need at this point is people to come forward who have information. We we believe there's, there were lots of people out there on the street, either walking, riding, driving by, who may have information. Maybe they saw an initial interaction before, uh, or they saw the actual stabbing occur, or they saw the aftermath. Um, we need any of those people uh, who haven't yet come forward to do so um, because we're still trying to fully understand exactly what happened, um, what the circumstances were, and what the motivation was.
Okay, last question for you. You mentioned that after this brutal assault on Monday in Kitsilano against this young woman here, that police have stepped up their patrols in that neighborhood there. Mm-hmm. What would be your, your message to to people, especially to women on the street? Like, you know, are they safe to walk around this neighborhood? Like, would, would you advise them not to walk around at night? Or what's your message to the people living in that area? People need to continue to live their lives, and nobody should have to change their behavior uh, as a result of somebody else making them feel unsafe. If you want to walk at 3.30 in the morning and listen to, uh, have your earbuds in and listen to a podcast or listen to your favorite music, you should be able to do that, and you shouldn't have to change your behavior because of predators who are making you feel unsafe. Um, While the area where this occurred is relatively safe and incidents like this are rare, uh, it's incredibly unnerving in a community. And we've heard that from residents, which is why we're, uh, we're responding the way we are. We're trying to, uh, we're increasing patrols, we're doing everything that we can um, to restore that sense of safety uh, and to investigate this offense so that we can identify the people who did this and hold them accountable. Steve Addison, thank you for your time today. Appreciate it. Anytime. Thanks, Mike. All right, let's talk about how to fight a traffic ticket now. Have you ever got a ticket for speeding or distracted driving or even a parking ticket? Can you beat the rap? Can you fight the law and win? I remember I got a parking ticket recently, and I thought it was a bum rap. I had time still on the parking meter, so I thought I was clearly in the right. Took a couple of pictures of the meter, and yeah, I was able to get that ticket thrown out. That was a bit of an easier one. I've had a couple of others I wasn't as successful on. But here's the deal on this. Is it easier to fight a ticket than you might otherwise think? I think a lot of people, they get handed a ticket, you might think, well, that's it. I, I, I got no options. You do have options to dispute these tickets. Let's discuss now with my guest, Kyla Lee, criminal lawyer at Acumen Law. She specializes in traffic law. Hi, Kyla. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Do you ever talk to clients who, who think that they've got no hope in, in beating a ticket, but maybe you as a trained professional lawyer might have a different view of it? All the time. Um, people don't realize that, you know, the defenses to tickets aren't just as black and white as they seem on the face. Some people think, you know, oh, I, I did the thing that they accused me of doing, so there's no hope that I can dispute this ticket. But whether you did it is not necessarily the same as whether they can prove it and whether the evidence that's necessary to prove it is going to be admissible in court. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about that. Let's talk about, first of all, the process. So let's say you do get a ticket. I suppose this varies according to the infraction that you're accused of here. But what is typically the process when you get a ticket? Well, step one, uh, you've got 30 days from the date that you received uh, the ticket to dispute it. So you can either go to an ICDC or you can mail in your notice of dispute. And then you kind of wait. (laughs) It doesn't go on your record. You don't get any points or anything like that. You don't have to pay the fine. Um, And you get a court date. And the court dates can be anywhere, sometimes as short as 90 days from when the incident took place all the way to, you know, several months, even a year later. Okay. And if you end up in front of in front of a judge or in front of a court, do you typically have to testify? Not necessarily. So what happens if your ticket goes to trial? So the first thing you do when you show up to court is the officer will meet you at court. And sometimes the officers want to sort them out. Usually the officers get scheduled with multiple tickets in the same block. So they may have 10 or 12 people that are all showing up for the same court session. They can't possibly proceed on every single ticket. So they're looking to wheel and deal a little bit. Um, And you may be able to take advantage of that to get a better outcome. 
um, when you go into court, if you are having a trial, um, the way that it works in traffic court is just like it works in a criminal case. So the prosecution has to put their case first. So the officer will testify, explain what they saw and what, you know, what occurred. And then you have the opportunity to cross-examine the officer to try and call into question the evidence that the officer has led to poke holes in the case against you and to put your version of events to the police before you testify, if you plan to testify. And is that all happening like face-to-face in an actual kind of brick-and-mortar courthouse these days? Because I know for a long time everything was online with COVID, but you're, you're back in person now, right? We're back in person, and traffic court has always been in person since July of uh, 2020. We've had in-person traffic court. Obviously, there were distancing and plexiglass and masks for a period of time, but everything is pretty much normal in the courtroom now. You wouldn't notice the difference. Okay, what about the evidence when you get into a a dispute? What type of evidence is usually sort of put in front of, of the court, and is there a way that you as a lawyer can challenge it? So most of the time, the evidence in uh, a traffic ticket is the officer's observations. So their observations of your vehicle's speed, measurement of a laser or radar device, uh, observations of you on your phone, whatever it is that you're alleged to do. Sometimes there are witnesses and the officer would have issued the ticket later. Those cases are are often very good to challenge because witnesses are not trained professionals in, uh, in testifying and often make mistakes in their evidence that the police can't fix. Um, And as a lawyer, one of the things that we do to try and challenge evidence is try and undermine the reliability of information that's put before the court. So cross-examine officers on their recollection. They've issued a lot of tickets, things like that, that show that they might be confusing this detail with another detail of another case, um, that show that what they say happened isn't something they actually recall happening, but they're relying on practice or habit to conclude that it must have happened that way. Um, And even to point out inconsistencies between what they say happened happened and their notes or the various things that they've said in, in the course of their testimony. Let's say you're stopped by a police officer for an infraction. Okay, let's say it's speeding. Is there any way to, like, how would you recommend dealing with a police officer? Because, you know, I've talked to people who, you know, if they get pulled over by a cop, they might be angry or upset at a police officer. And I don't think that's a really a really good response. Like, if you're polite to a police officer, will a police officer sometimes just give you a break and not write you the ticket? Oh, yes, definitely. Um, uh, I mean, obviously, it's not a get-out-of-jail-free card, but being polite and um, and being respectful is going to get you a lot further than arguing or yelling. Um, officers have discretion about whether or not to issue tickets, and especially after long shifts where they've given out a lot of tickets, you know, the police take a lot of abuse from people over this. Yeah. And Sometimes having a, you know, a polite face to deal with is all that they need to go, you know what, this is the one I'm going to give a break on today. Okay, now there's another, I've heard some other tips here, and you and I have discussed some of these in the past, but I, I still wonder if it's, if some of this stuff is real or if it's just like an urban myth. Like, <laughs> I've heard someone say that, well, if you get a ticket and you feel like you're going to fight it, one of the first things you should do is ask for a new court date, like phone the court and say, I can't make it this particular day. Ask for a different court date, preferably on a, on a Friday, maybe <laughs> to increase the chance that the police officer won't show up. So if the police officer is not there, they throw the, the ticket out. Is that true? 
I mean, it's true that they'll throw the ticket out if the police officer's not there, but you can't really count on a you know sunny Friday afternoon in August being uh, a way to avoid the consequences of the ticket because police officers don't work shifts like the rest of us sort of normally work where we're working regular hours and, and have the weekends off. Um, you know, they might be working shifts that have them on those days. Police officers work 365 days a year. So relying on a Friday afternoon to get out of court is not necessarily something that's going to assist you. Um, And also by adjourning your court date, you may be giving up some of your rights. If you ask the court to give you a new date, you're essentially waiving the delay um, to your new court date. And if it takes a long time for your matter to come before court, they're going to point the finger at you as causing that delay and you lose your right to make the argument that your case took too long. All right, we're talking traffic law and traffic tickets with my guest, Kyla Lee. And Kyla always gets a ton of phone calls. Today is no different. Robert on the line in Surrey. Hi, Robert. Go ahead. Hello. Thank you. Sure. Yeah, my story about two years ago on King George heading home, I was pulled over supposedly for undue care and attention by an off-duty RCMP. Hmm. He took all my information and then let me go. But he came to my house 80 days later and gave me a ticket. Wow. He said he, he said he forgot. Two days later, I went to the courthouse in Surrey to dispute it. I was told you only have 30 days to dispute a ticket. So therefore, I was found automatically guilty. I went to New Westminster to the higher court to dispute it. So they kicked it back to Surrey. So I could dispute my ticket. So three months later, I got to my uh, my court date. And the problem was, when he gave me the ticket 80 days later at my door, he never filled out the date of issuance on the first copy, which is mine. He filled out the proper way, the other date of issuance, on the second and third copy for the police and for Victoria. I talked to Internal Affairs. He told me that this officer is not a traffic cop and didn't know how to fill out a ticket. He also told me the cop did not know that you have only 30 days to dispute the ticket. Wow. So what happened at the end? Did you still have to pay I the got fine? My points, I got my points off my license, and I got my, uh, my fine back. And when I was wow. in court, I tried to explain exactly what I just told you to the judge, and she said, sorry, I don't have any more time. She didn't want to hear these details. And so the internal affairs was uh, defending the cop. And then the internal affairs guy told me, because I was disputing my ticket, that I have a vindictive attitude, and I'm oh. trying to get this officer into trouble. Okay, Robert, thank you. Great. <laughs> Pretty wild story. Kyla, what do you think of that one? This actually uh, is not an uncommon story. Um, Because police officers are allowed to serve a ticket up to a year after when incidents take place, when this happens, they often don't write the correct date on the ticket for the date of service. Um, They just circle or leave blank, um, indicating that it's the same as the incident date. And this causes a lot of problems for people. We deal with cases like this all the time in trying to undo these mistakes. Okay, that's very interesting. Doug on the line in Aldergrove. Hi, Doug, go ahead. Hey, how are you doing today? I'm good. Go ahead. I got a couple of good points about fighting tickets. Uh, you guys were talking about the 30 days uh, you have to fight your ticket. I yeah. bought tickets up to a year later. And what you need to do is go into the courthouse, uh, to the registry. You swear out an affidavit saying you mailed in your dispute, which is one of the options listed on the ticket. 
since they can't prove service, what they'll do is they'll remove the points or anything that they attributed to your license and give you a new court date. Uh, one of the other things is the more people that fight their tickets, the better. Because if the courts get backed up so far, they will actually dismiss blocks of tickets, like say from January to August. All those tickets in there, they'll throw out just to get the, the courts back in, in rhythm that, again. Okay, Doug, thank you for the call. Kyla, is that true that they'll throw, they'll throw tickets out if there's a backlog? You have to file an application to the court for your ticket to be thrown out. The court doesn't have sort of jurisdiction to do it just on its own motion. Um, but if you file an application, if there is more than 18 months from when the ticket happened to your first court date, then likely it will be thrown out. I did want to say you should never, ever file a false affidavit with the court registry. That actually is a criminal offense called perjury, and you can face up to 14 years in jail for doing that. So, right. so <laughs> yeah, so you should not lie and say, oh, I mailed, I mailed it in when you really didn't. Correct, because if yeah, you yeah. prove that don't you lied, lie. you can go to jail. Yeah. yeah, don't do that. Razor on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Razor, go ahead. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Um, sure. Yeah, I was busted going down down Smythe, uh, south on Smythe, and a uh, police officer on a bike, as I was changing addresses on Google Maps, um, pulled me over. Um, it was the distracted driving ticket, and I was or not necessarily worried about the price of the ticket, but the demerit points, of course. Um, pulled over, and then uh, I had to postpone it a few times. I postponed it for as long as I could, but to be honest, I... Oh, uh, no, it's okay. I, I postponed it for quite a while, and then once I went to my actual court date, uh, the judge was a very nice guy, dressed appropriately, um, you know, wore a full suit, and he said, this one's a bit long in the tooth. Uh, thanks for coming in. We'll dismiss it. So I was lucky wow. in, in that regard. Kyla, your thoughts? That is uh, definitely lucky. And, um, you know, when uh, cases are uh, getting old, um, judges do have, you know, some power to control the process. It used to be that they could throw them out for delay. But uh, there was a recent B.C. Supreme Court case that overturned a judicial justice doing that in traffic court. And so now it has to be done by a provincial court judge. What do you think about him saying he wore a suit to court? Do you think (laughs) that's a good idea to sort of dress for success when you go in there? Does that make a difference? Definitely dress appropriately for court. I have seen judicial justices in traffic court uh, talk to people um, in a not-so-nice way about the way that they show up dressed if they're not dressed appropriately. Yeah. What, you mean they show up wearing, like... Sweat, jeans, sweats short. and a t-shirt yeah yeah uh, you Shorts. should you should dress like you're going to work <laughs> yeah let's go to angelo on the line in delta hi angelo go ahead oh hi there um i had a uh traffic ticket traveling on king george highway in surrey basically oh. i changed the lane without putting on my signal light and then i had to dispute it in richmond so i went there and I saw this one officer talking to people in the lobby, just waiting there. And I couldn't remember my officer at the time, but he did approach me, ask me my name. <clears throat> and then he said, are you going to plead guilty on this charge? Uh, and this and that, if you do, I'll request that the judge gives you 50, you know, only pay half of the fine, which I think the original oh. fine was $80. And he oh. told me 40. So I said, oh. okay. So I went in the courtroom with the police officer, and the judge there asked me, are you pleading guilty? And I said, yes. And then the police officer says, charge him at your discretion. 
And I looked <laughs> no. at him. No. Yeah, I looked at him, and I was looking actually at the judge, and she was looking down, and she just calls the next person, and that was the end. So you had to pay the full fine? Yeah, I had to pay oh. the full lady. Oh, so the, so the police officer didn't keep his end of the deal? No, I, I, that huh. I did not expect. And I've told all my friends, and they were all like, what? Yeah. Okay. okay. Just, yeah. Angela, thanks for this story. Okay, 30 seconds, Kyla. What do you think? There is a process if a, a prosecutor reneges on a deal uh, to try and get that brought back into place, but it is a very complicated legal process, and it's one of the reasons why having a lawyer can help you out in court. Yeah, I mean, I don't think a police officer would do that very often, sort of no, renege no, on a deal is, like that. It's very rare that things like that happen. Okay. Kyla, thanks for coming on today. Where, where can people get more information if they want to get in touch with you there? They can find us at uh, VancouverCriminalLaw.com or uh, just find me on Twitter. <laughs> thanks, Kyla. Thank you. All right, welcome back. Let's go inside the highest security prison in America now. It has been called the most secure prison in the world. We're talking about ADX Florence Prison in Colorado, better known as Colorado's Supermax Prison. It has another nickname, too, the Alcatraz of the Rockies. And if you are an inmate of this prison... We're talking about the worst of the worst, psychopaths, gang leaders, mafia bosses, murderers and terrorists, people like Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber is in there, Richard Reed, the infamous shoe bomber, and a more recent inmate, Joaquin Guzman, also known as El Chapo, one of the biggest drug lords in the world. I've got Bob Hood standing by. He is the former warden of the Supermax jail. First, have a listen to this report now from Inside Edition on El Chapo and his life behind bars at the Supermax. Have a listen. This just-released footage of El Chapo shows the drug lord looking teary-eyed and in shock after he was flown to New York. He now faces a life sentence at Supermax Prison in Colorado, known as the Alcatraz of the Rockies. Its infamous inmates include the Boston Marathon bomber, the Unabomber, and the shoe bomber who tried to bring down a plane. Cells are small at Supermax. The furniture is made of stone, not metal. I spoke by phone to former Supermax warden Bob Hood. How difficult would it be for him to even try to escape? Well, no one has so far since 1994 when they opened. But in El Chapo type of confinement at the Supermax, he will be in his cell about 23 hours a day. He'll have cameras all over him. You'll remember this surveillance video of El Chapo escaping through a tunnel dug under his prison cell in Mexico in 2015. No such luck with Supermax. It's built into solid rock. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Bob Hood. You heard his voice there in that report. He is the former warden of the Supermax jail in Colorado, and I'm very pleased he could join us on the show today. Bob, thanks a lot for coming on. Sure, thank you. Hey, Bob, when were you the warden down there at the Supermax jail? It was uh, 2002 to 2005. Yeah, and what was that like for you when you first, what was it like to first go there for the first time and see this uh, this facility? What went through your mind there when you first saw it? Well, I've been in uh, hundreds of facilities prior to going there, and I was with the Bureau of Prison as a warden. 
but I must admit, when I revisited that, it brought back visions of Alcatraz when I toured that, and uh, some prisons over in Europe, which are extremely stark. It's a very high-tech facility, and you know, when you're looking at it before you even walk in the door, you're looking at 12 gun towers on the complex. You're looking at razor wire. You're looking at the beautiful Rocky Mountains, but again, the prisons, prisoners uh, don't get to see much of that once they get inside. So very, very stark, very tough-looking place. When we, we talked about some of the famous inmates there at the Supermax jail, like the Unabomber, the Shoe Bomber, when you were the warden, did you have any, any interactions with these guys? I'm always amazed at that uh, question. And the reason being, I spent almost eight hours a day with the inmates. My style was to go in the, you know, there's only, you can only hold 490 inmates at the Supermax section. There's 2,500 inmates on the complex. So my daily day would be going to see each and every inmate and then uh, doing the paperwork and touring the rest of the facility after that time. So, yes, I spoke to every inmate there every day. What was that like when you're dealing with a guy like the, the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski? What was he like? Each person's different. He's, uh, you know, he's a very uh, quiet guy, very cerebral. He uh, knows six or seven languages, has a doctorate degree, as you know, and taught at Berkeley and all that business. But, again, he's a hermit. He's uh, one of these people that would say, good morning, warden, and that would be about it. And even though I was only there for three years, I went on to uh, other things. For the three years there, the interaction was very stark, but then uh, very simple. But then you get other folks, like you said, whether it be uh, Richard Reed or, or uh, Sammy the Bull Gravano or some of the high-profile uh, mafia guys and, 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 and serial killers, etc. Some would, uh, you know, talk your ear off. Depends who it, who it would be. Speaking of Bob Hood, the former warden of the Supermax prison in Colorado, we heard in that report, Bob, about El Chapo, the Mexican drug lord, now an inmate there at the Supermax jail. He is famous for his prison escapes, escaped twice from jails in Mexico. Is there any chance he could escape from the Supermax? Zero chance. He escaped in 2001 in Mexico, 2015. He's been there as of this Tuesday coming up. He will have been at the Supermax for three years. Most people don't realize that. He's been there for three years. He sized it up. He realized he's doing life plus 30 years. He will die at the Supermax. Yeah, and, and he has been in the news here uh, the last couple of weeks after filing some official complaints about the conditions at the jail. He has complained about the cell being too small. He says he's, he's, he's too isolated from other inmates, doesn't like the food. Uh, what do you what do you think of those complaints from El Chapo? They're valid. You've got to give them credit for that. Um, it's a seven by twelve foot cell. It's stark. It's all covered by the Supreme Court, right on to the federal courts. All the agencies that come in. It's it's not designed. We have 122 federal prisons. This is your last stop. This is your last stop pending death penalty. Um, so again, he's he's 100 percent correct. I'll give him that much. Yeah, but I think I believe his complaints didn't really go very far. What do you think about some of the criticism of the conditions in this jail? Like, are are the prisoners locked in their cells? I think we heard in that report twenty three hours a day. Is that correct? Yeah, that's the average inmate, and you have to realize yeah. a person like El Chapo, he has what's called a special administrative measure assigned by the Attorney General of the United States that says he cannot talk to another inmate. He cannot even see another inmate. He is technically 
it's, it's beyond death as far as I'm concerned. It's uh, truly a person that's just locked down for the rest of his time there unless they modify the special administrative measure. So um, he has a he has a seven by twelve cell, very stark, uh, little TV set that's in there that does not show contemporary news. It's always uh, delayed newspapers. He'll get thirty day year old thirty day um, newspapers that are redacted at times. So even though he has the comforts, if you will, of a shower in his room, he has a TV set. He has things to do newspapers, etc. It's all with the understanding that he's such a powerful person and he has such means to still harm people in the world that he is really locked down with no communications. He, he complained about the food there at the Supermax jail. Where, where do these guys eat? Do they eat in their in their cells? Yes, they do. Uh, tonight's just for your listeners. Tonight, Wednesday night, he's having pasta, marinara sauce, spinach, garden salad, Italian dressing, garlic bread, whole wheat bread, and a beverage. So, you know, don't get me wrong, that's a national, there's a national diet, if you will, that is sent to all 157,000 inmates throughout the federal system. So that's what he's going to have tonight. So, yeah, it's, it might not be what he wants. Maybe he's not having what he had in Mexico. But, uh, yeah. again, it's, it's in the cell. It's simply provided to him in his cell. Yeah, when he escaped twice from jails in Mexico, there's some famous video footage showing how he actually disappeared mm-hmm. from a shower stall in a Mexican jail after a tunnel had been dug underneath the jail. You know, I, I, I think that he probably had some help maybe on the inside from the prison guards. Do you think that's how he was able to escape those jails down in Mexico? I mean, they don't run those jails down there like, they, like you used to run the Supermax. Sure, without question. Uh, you know, he has the means, he had the connections, the money, etc. The difference with the Supermax, so many hundreds of cameras, even when he's sleeping, uh, 24 hours a day, even when the lights are out, we're watching every single bit, unlike what they were doing when, in both of those Mexican prisons. Um, if for, Even when there's movement, if there is a reason for him to come down the hallway, the whole prison is locked down. He would physically be the only inmate walking at the time with, and I can't tell you all the security, but I could tell you hundreds of cameras watching them, various staff, Martin chain, which is around your stomach, uh, leg irons, uh, also handcuffs, of course. And um, it's, it's such an abundance of caution. Plus, like I said before, having 12 gun towers around the facility, the overall facility, yeah. it's just, um, you know, good luck. As far as digging his way out and having the outside help coming in, uh, there's there's uh, helicopter detection uh, equipment that's going to stop that happening, and uh, yeah, he's he's not going anywhere, unfortunately for him. All right, welcome back to my conversation with Bob Hood. He's the former warden of the Supermax prison in Colorado, the most secure prison in America. Some of the most notorious prisoners in the world there too. People like the Unabomber, El Chapo. Uh, they are locked up there at the Supermax jail. Hey, Bob, uh, as you, we've talked about some of the conditions in the Supermax, the, the small cells, the inmates locked down for 23 hours a day. What do you say to the, some of the criticism from, from people who say that the conditions are too severe? It almost, it almost works out to almost like mental torture for the people in these jails. What do you, what do you say to that? I understand it. When I was a warden there and the inmates would say, uh, you know, are you for real? Is this the, are these the conditions I'm going to be in? I concurred with them. I do think that with the way it was built, it replaced Alcatraz, the island at Alcatraz, which only existed for 30 years. And then Marion, Illinois was the second 
supermax prison in America. It lasted about 30 years. It's still there, but it was used as a supermax. And now this particular supermax is almost 30 years old. It's 28 years old. I agree with them. I think uh, the world has changed. The type of inmates have changed. There's more mental health issues noted. There's more litigation. We're basically at the the maxing out, if you will, of the prison, just like Alcatraz, Marion. The supermax or the ADX is truly, in my opinion, time for a change, time for uh, a rekindling. Yeah, it's very interesting to hear. 604-280-9898 is the number to call if you have a question for Bob. Star 9898 on your cell. Pete on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Pete. Go ahead. Hi. Yeah, um, I've got a, speaking of mental health, I have a question about it. Um, I did a blog post showing that 21 to 45% of prisoners in jail had an ADHD, and I used 15 studies because I assume politicians might write off two or three. I'm wondering, the supermax, uh, do you screen prisoners for ADHD, or do you just do a generic mental health thing that doesn't cover ADHD? And if you do, what percentage of the prisoners have ADHD, and do you have any specific ADHD programs for them? Because, again, the generic mental health, often those people aren't even trained on ADHD, so they'll be kind of you know, anywhere from useless okay. to harmful. Okay, that's a very interesting question. Bob, your thoughts? Yeah, no question. Um, yeah, there's a full-time psychiatrist, uh, psychologist, case managers, etc. So the, uh, the diagnostic testing, the intake testing does occur. If for some reason we can't hold that particular inmate at the facility for any psychological reason, we send them to another federal prison. Butner, North Carolina is one of the typical ones where we would send. But you know, we, I couldn't tell you the numbers. I'm not a psychiatrist or psychologist, but I could tell you as a warden, clearly the deprivation, the sensory deprivation, the confinement, the conditions of confinement do have a psychological effect. When they are noted, either when they're coming in or during their time there, they would simply be transferred uh, and then t- return back if, uh, if needed. You mentioned, Bob, that when you were the warden there at the Supermax, you had daily interaction with prisoners like Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, uh, Richard Reed, the, the infamous shoe bomber. Like when you got to know these guys, did any of them, uh, did you end up in any way kind of liking any of them or form like relationships with them that, you, you know, you, you had any favorites or were some of them really, really bad to you or mean to you? Ironically, when, when they're secured as they are, you know, some will keep a distance for a couple of months, but across the board, everyone realizes I'm the warden. Someone will suck up to me, just be nice because they want something. But when you get someone like uh, Sammy the Bull was there, at killing 19, allegedly killing 19 people for the mafia, I enjoyed seeing him. I wouldn't go and say we're buddies or friends, but when I was there, I enjoyed seeing him. He showed respect. No different than uh, other inmates, but his was a sincere respect. He had a sense wow. of humor. Uh, I enjoyed, uh, you know, you get some quiet people like Ramsey Yusuf that'll say good morning and then uh, keep a distance. And truly, if some of them could reach out and get me, some would do it because that's their role. That's their job, if you will. But overall, 95% of the inmates there are very compliant because they realize, you know, they're they're doing life plus 100 years. They're doing multiple life sentences. Uh, they know it's the last stop, so I'm their best bet to not not be a make me an enemy. Dave in White Rock. Dave, thirty seconds. Keep it short. Okay, go ahead. Oh, okay, all right. Hey, listen. So when they're eating and stuff, and if they if they know they're down for life, 
Um, and do you give them utensils? What about like stuff to sleep in? Can they hang themselves? I mean, how do these guys? How do you keep them from killing themselves? Basically, we got, we got thirty seconds left here, Bob. Sure. Well, we've had eight suicides at the Supermax since 1994 when it opened. You do give them plastic utensils. You make sure you get them back after they ate. Uh, they do have clothes that they could obviously rip up their, their clothes and, and hang themselves. But the, na- the nature of how that is built, how the cell is, it's almost impossible to reach up high enough. But yet, we have had suicides. We've had a murder there. Uh, wow. uh, which is hard to believe. We did have a murder there in 2005 after I left. So, uh, yeah, it's it's uh, anything can happen in a place right. like that. Bob, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show today with your ne- unique perspective on this. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it a lot. Sure, enjoyed it. Thank you. Oh.